So we are starting a new series today based on the book of Philippians, which is written by the Apostle Paul, who's this leader in the early church. And he writes letters to the churches that are in this local area, in this Mediterranean area. And he writes Philippians while he's in jail, while he's in chains for the gospel of Jesus. And many scholars, they see these letters, they see Paul's words here as uh, maybe being like his, his last words of encouragement and teaching to his friends that he's not even sure he's ever going to see again. And so they have their words of significance and they have great meaning. And uh, what we try to do in the scriptures is unpack some of these things in light of the context of what is happening and what's going on in the moment. And so Philippians chapter one, where we're looking at this week, uh, verse 12, 14 says, now I want you to know, so Paul is writing, I want you to know brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. He's speaking of being in prison, being in, being in chains. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and, dare, uh, and uh, all the more uh, proclaim the gospel without fear. And so Paul doesn't find his hope in uh, what side of the jail bars he's on. Paul is saying, I'm, I'm finding my hope and my meaning, my significance, my purpose in something different. He's finding his hope and his purpose in knowing that the gospel will go forward, knowing that the kingdom of God will advance. And, and whether he's in chains or not doesn't seem to impact that. And so that doesn't uh, limit his sense of joy and of purpose. And it's worth noting that Paul uses the word gospel four times right in the opening verses. Uh, verse 5 says, I thank God for your partnership in the gospel. Verse 7 says, I am in chains defending and confirming the gospel. Verse 12, the gospel is advancing even though I'm in jail. And again in verse 14, other believers are now boldly proclaiming the gospel without fear. And so Paul is... He's, he's, his letter is peppered with references and this word, the gospel, and, and it's central to what he's saying. And then he says this in verse 27, which becomes so important to his letter. He says, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. At 87 years old, Gordon Fee is, remains as one of the most respected New Testament theologians of our modern day. And he is, uh, continues to be uh, an adjunct professor at Regent College in Vancouver. He's written many books and authority and, and reference books on New Testament study. And Philippians happens to be one of his areas of expertise, one of his areas of specialty. And this is what he says. And, 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 and the thing with Gordon Fee as a theologian, when you're, if you're a bit of a, maybe you, know, you don't even know who he is or what, what that is about, Gordon Fee is respected because he brings a wonderful spirit-filled faith experience, and he blends that with a deep love and respect for the scriptures. And so a lot of the things that he teaches from New Testament theology are rich within the spirit of God and making room for the ministry of the spirit. And, and this is part of why he's so respected. And uh, he says this about verse 27, 
of chapter one of the book of Philippians, this letter to Philippians. He says, it is the interpretive key for the entire letter. And he says, learning to understand the significance of verse 27 as a first century follower of Jesus in Philippi unlocks the meaning and intent behind the whole letter. And the Greek word translated as citizen, and Paul says, I want you to, above all, be citizens of heaven. So uh, I'm, not, uh, I'm not a Greek expert, but this is the phonetic way that you, s- you say the word. It's polit uamahe, polit uamahe. And this word comes from the Greek word politi, which is uh, the Greek uh, word for politics. And what it's used and how it's used in the Greek language is it's a political word that describes citizenship by adopting the customs and the traditions and the practices of the political system and the culture that you're living in. And in the first century uh, Rome, in the first century of this, of this context, the word was used to describe assimilating new people into Roman culture. Now, the Roman culture grew through hegemony, and they expanded their borders by overtaking weaker cities and regions around them. And so this Roman Empire is growing and expanding at a rapid pace by basically going in and swallowing up the areas around them and adopting those people into the kingdom. And Caesar wanted them to do more than just live within the borders of the empire. He wanted them to become Romans. And to become a citizen of Rome meant adopting the Roman way of life, the art, the philosophy, the culture, the economy, the value system. And Paul uses this same word and he applies it to faith in Jesus. In Philippians is an invitation to fully embody what it means to live as a citizen of heaven, a citizen of the kingdom, a citizen who follows the ways of its ruler and authority, who is Jesus. And the idea here is following Jesus is not something we just say, it is something we are, it's something we become, it's something we do within every area of our life. To live as citizens of heaven, worthy of the gospel of Jesus. And so Paul uses this word gospel again and again and again. And it is worth reflecting on to think, what is the gospel? Now, maybe you think, what kind of question is that? Of course, I know what the gospel is. But if we were to say, what is the gospel? Most of us, myself included, would describe the gospel as the good news of Jesus, this idea that he loves everyone, he came to earth, he gave his life, he died on the cross, we believe in him, we have forgiveness of sins, we have eternal life with him. That's really how we describe the gospel, some variation of that. That's probably how most of us would define that and answer that question. And it's all true and it's all good news. But we should know that the modern standard definitions of the gospel actually fail to capture the significance of the word in a first century Roman context. And this is why it's important to think through some of these things. When uh, uh, theologian N.T. Wright, so N.T. Wright is one of the leading thinkers in gospel uh, theology and gospel understanding in in our world today. 
And he says this, he says, I'm perfectly fine with the common definitions of the gospel, being Jesus died for my sins and he offers forgiveness by grace and not by my works. And if I confess my sin and invite him into my heart, then I have eternal life. But I just don't believe that is the full meaning of the gospel presented in the scriptures. And so depending on the translation, the word will either be gospel or good news. That's the predominant way our English translations are looking at this, this, this idea that it's the gospel or it's the good news of Jesus. Well, these are both translations from the Greek word euangelion, euangelion. The term gospel is almost exclusively a religious word today. But in first century Rome, euangelion was a political word. It was a political term. And it spoke of and referred to the announcement and the declaration that there was a change in leadership. It was like the inauguration. It was the empowering. It was the transferring of power from one leader to a new leader. There's a new leader taking over. This is a euangelion announcement. This is what it's meaning when we hear the words, the gospel of Jesus. Now, the last great euangelion was in 14 AD, and Tiberius took the throne following the death of Caesar Augustus. And the euangelion announcement that would have come in the Roman Empire would have been vast and grand. It would have been celebrations. It would have been ceremonies. It would have been full of pomp, full of great uh, you know, activity. Everybody would have been involved. And the announcement was a decree that Tiberius as Caesar was the ultimate authority and leader of an unmatched power, an unmatched empire on earth. And it was really a declaration that he was the highest authority on earth. And in fact, this is where we get the idea and where Rome and Roman culture began to institute that the Caesars were descendants of God. They were descendants of the gods. And Caesar himself, whoever sat in that throne, was elevated to divinity and could not be challenged. And this is the background for what's happening here. In first century Rome, the word gospel meant get ready because there's a new king in town and he's about to be in charge. Now, the Roman Empire had no equal and it went unchallenged for 200 years. Just at the beginning with Caesar Augustus and another 200 years following, it grew to 70 million people. It reached its borders from modern day India all the way encompassing into Britain. And Caesar Augustus united Rome in 27 BC in what is known as the Pax Romana, which is the peace of Rome. And up until this time, Rome would have been understood as multiple smaller regions with different leaders and different authorities, generals who kind of controlled their areas. And there was infighting. There would have been civil war. It would have been dangerous to travel from one place to another because uh, roadways weren't safe. And there was lots of piracy and lots of bad things happening. And Rome itself was this, this disheveled groupings of lots of factions. And when Caesar Augustus takes power, and he becomes the first Caesar, he brings peace to the Roman Empire, and that's Pax Romana, and he unifies the empire. But the peace of Rome was peace by force. Roman citizens were required to pledge allegiance to the Caesar or be imprisoned, enslaved, or put to death. 
And any challenge to Caesar's rule was immediately squashed with the swiftest and most harshest means possible to send a message his authority could not be challenged. And being a Roman citizen was more than a street address. It meant complete loyalty to Caesar and came with it an expectation that you would become Roman. You would adopt the Roman way of life. And this is the backdrop to first century Rome. And it helps us better understand the significance of this idea of gospel being the euangelion declaration that Jesus is Lord of all. And this is so important to understanding this idea of faith in Jesus. The gospel is the announcement that Jesus' kingdom has come to earth as it is in heaven. And all other rulers and authorities are subject to him, including Rome and Caesar. And this becomes a pivotal point of what it means to follow Jesus and what the gospel means when we read the early Testament scriptures. And this is why Paul was put in chains, why he was put in jail. This is why Christians were persecuted for advancing the gospel of Jesus. And this is where our definition of gospel falls short. And John Mark Comer, who's a respected pastor and author, says, if you were a first century citizen in Rome who believed God loved you and died for you, there would have been no problem. Rome and the, the Roman Empire was pluralistic in that it adopted and assimilated many different cultures and people. And as long as the God or the faith of the religion that you followed, as long as that was subject to the power and the authority of Rome and it didn't hurt anybody else, you were okay, you could do it. You could, you could continue to follow your God. You could continue to believe what you wanted to believe as long as you became a Roman citizen. No one went to jail because they believed Jesus forgave their sins and gave them an eternal life. The modern standard definitions of the gospel would not have really created a problem back in first century Rome. It is something bigger. It is something more significant that the early Christians are declaring when they declare their faith in the gospel of Jesus. Christians went to jail because they claimed to serve a king higher than Caesar. And the gospel is more than good news. The gospel is more than the forgiveness of our sins and inviting Jesus into our heart. The gospel is a declaration that Jesus is Lord over all. And you, as a follower of Jesus, as someone who believes in the gospel of Jesus, you are welcoming the kingdom of God into your life on earth as it is in heaven. We become hosts of the kingdom of God. And this is what creates a problem for the early church followers of Jesus. The gospel is this declaration that Jesus is Lord over all and his kingdom has come to earth as it is in heaven. Colossians 1, 15 to 20 reads this. And this is, this is something to think of when we think of the gospel. With all those things in light of, think of this as the gospel. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. 
He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all of creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is the body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. That is the gospel in New Testament theology. That is the gospel in first century Rome. It is this understanding that Jesus is before all things. He created all things. He holds all things together. He is the highest authority. He is the highest ruler, and we are in his kingdom. This is the idea, and it's a incredibly relevant and challenging to first century Christians in Philippi. And this has particular significance and particular relevance to Philippi and this Philippian church. And this is why when we think of uh, Philippians 1.27 and Paul calling us to live as citizens of heaven, worthy of the gospel, worthy of the declaration that Jesus is above all, there's a significant thing that's happening here. Uh, I'm gonna invite the band to come and get ready. Uh, we're just in the, kind of in these final thoughts and the, that rather than them come and, and interrupt in, a, in another moment or two, I think I'll just invite them to come now. But here's where it gets interesting. Here's where we begin to understand what's happening in Philippians. And I hope this is something that you will hold on to and that you will remember and reflect on for a long time. And it will inform your study and understanding of what's going on when you think of the New Testament scriptures. Prior to becoming the first Caesar Augustus, uh, Augustus was known as Octavian. And Octavian was one of these regional leaders who was rising up in power. And the pivotal moment in Octavian's rise in power came when two leaders in, in Greek, in modern-day Greece, rose up, they unified, and they rose up against him to oppose his rise to power. And what Octavian did is he sent his most powerful legion of centurions to face off against his opponents, and so by this time, this is now the last two. If you think of the presidential primaries, this, is, um, this would be Trump and Clinton. This would be like, they're the last two. They're the last one standing. And what happens is uh, Octavian sends his best soldiers to go and square off and stand off against his enemies on their home turf. And where it is, is it's, it becomes known as the battle of the plains of Philippi. And these opponents rise up in the region of Philippi and Octavian sends his soldiers there and he defeats his opponents right there on their own native soil. And in an act of saying thank you, in an act of reward, what he does is he, uh, he sets the or he sets the, the, the soldiers, the centurions, free of their military duty, and he gives them this new land in Philippi, and he says, I want you to live there. I want you to inhabit it. 
And this is what paves the way for Caesar to, uh, for, for, for Octavian to become Caesar Augustus, to become the first Caesar to unify Rome, because now there's no more opponents. And what he does is he sets his soldiers into this area where his strongest opponents were. And says, I want you to build houses. I want you to build the city of Philippi. I want you to inhabit it. I want you to create a culture. And what happens is Philippi becomes an outpost of uh, the Roman Empire. And it actually grows and becomes the biggest, most influential presence of Rome outside of Rome itself. And in years following, Caesar sends uh, families and dignitaries and, and people of wealth and of influence. He sends them to Philippi to continue to grow and strengthen Philippi. So this city becomes an outpost of the Roman culture of the Roman Empire because Caesar wants those people to adopt the Roman culture. He wants them not just to live within the borders of the Roman Empire, he wants them to become Roman. This is why Gordon Fee says Philippians 1.27 is the key to understanding Paul's message. Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Philippi is a city purpose-built, full of soldiers and dignitaries and influential people to bring the art, the culture, the economy, the values, the beliefs, and the political loyalty to Rome, to turn those people into Romans in every essence of what that meant. It was to make those people full citizens of Rome. And it is in this context that Paul writes to the people who are Christians in this city and says, I want you to be full citizens of heaven. I want you to be worthy of the gospel of Christ, the evangelion announcement that Jesus has come and his earth has come to, uh, to earth as it is in heaven. The Philippian Christians knew what Paul was asking. It was an act and a request of complete, total submission, regardless of what would happen. Paul is in prison for rising and opposing Caesar's reign, which comes with a penalty of death. And Paul writes his fellow believers and says, don't just become citizens of Rome. Don't forget you are citizens of heaven. You are servants of Jesus, the King of kings, the most high God. Don't sell out. Don't bow down to Caesar. Don't compromise. Don't get caught up in the indulgences and the distractions of the Roman lifestyle. Don't get sidetracked by all the art and the culture and the mythology and the riches and the economy and the pleasures and the lusts of flesh and the promise of riches and the treasures of this world. Don't get so lost living as a citizen of Rome. You forget that you are first and foremost, a citizen of heaven. This is the key 
to understanding Paul and this letter to the Philippians. This is the world they are living in. This is the tension they're in. This is the struggle they're in. The voice and the call and the lure and the distraction of becoming and indulging and taking on everything that was good and excessive of Rome was always knocking at their door. It was the very message of the city they lived in. It was created from the ground up to accomplish that one goal. You could not escape it. You could not get away from it. Everything about your life sent one message, become a Roman. And Paul says, you are first and foremost a citizen of heaven, not a citizen of Rome. Keep Jesus as your first love. For Caesar is merely a man, and Rome will not last. It's not eternal. Psalm 145, 13 says, The Lord's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. As mighty as rulers and authorities may appear to be, they're temporal. As strong as the promise of pleasure and riches and success and fame, and building a life of becoming a Roman. As strong as that lure is, it's temporal, it's going to go away, it won't last. It's in ruins today, it will be in ruins tomorrow. There is a choice, there is a compromise. How fitting these words are for us today. And I think it's very easy for us to understand in this moment that just as the Philippians had this incredible call and pressure and expectation to become Roman in every way, the world 2,000 years later is still trying to sell us the same bag of goods. They're still trying. It's still pursuing. It's still luring. It's still distracting. Call it whatever empire you want. It's the empire of sex. It's the empire of goods. It's the empire of popularity. It's the empire of riches. It's the empire of the perfect life, the good life. And it's trying to turn our head. It's trying to lure us away. And as Paul would write his final words to the church in Philippi, How relevant and practical is it for us today? For we are not citizens of Rome. We are not citizens. We are are aliens and strangers on this place we call earth. This is but a temporary home, a temporary moment for us. We serve a God whose kingdom is eternal. And there is a distraction and there is a call to say, bow down, and serve Rome when Jesus is saying live as citizens of heaven. We're to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus. We're to live a life worthy of the lordship of Jesus as the creator of the universe who was before all things, who is above all things, who all things are created by him and for him. Jesus and the gospel of Jesus is so much more than just the forgiveness of sins and inviting him into our heart. It is hosting 
the presence of God. It is living as a citizen of heaven.